This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. In October of 2018, a tragedy struck a synagogue in Squirrel Hill, a neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Paul Kengor's daughters were nearly in the line of fire. Here he is to recount that story. Pray for us, I will call you later. That was a text message that we received from our 16-year-old daughter at 10.16 a.m. on Saturday morning, October 27, 2018. As my wife and I drove toward Pittsburgh Strip District in downtown Pittsburgh. My wife called my daughter immediately. Are you okay? Were you in an accident? In a hushed voice, my daughter explained that she, our second daughter, and three friends, along with an adult friend of ours named Susie, were hiding in their van across the street from the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill section. They were there for a Saturday morning retreat at a house across the street. They had arrived at 9.55 a.m. They had initially stopped the van directly across from the synagogue on Shady Avenue, which would have been straight in the line of fire between the police and the shooter. It's going to be at 5898 Wilkins Avenue, Tree of Life Synagogue. 3480, you They were planning to hop out and walk to the house. Mercifully, the driver, Susie, decided almost on a whim, a gut feel, she later conceded, to find a parking spot so she could walk the girls inside. Just as she moved to a spot a little further away, police cars began flying in. Okay, um, initial reports of an active shooter, one down in the Tree of Life Synagogue Zone 4. As a girl struggled to assess the chaos, the police parked sideways in order to use their vehicles as shields for the shootout. The street was instantly closed off. Susie told the girls not to get out. They all sat on the floor of the van, ducked and listened and prayed and worried. We received that text message about 20 minutes later. Shortly after we talked to her daughter, Susie and the girls made a careful decision to drive a little further away. Susie did a U-turn and went down the street just enough to pull into a driveway that allowed them to put a few houses and buildings of separation between them, the synagogue and the gunfire. After nearly an hour of chaos and confusion, the girls decided to abandon the van and make a run for it. uh, 315 base, we are pinned down by gunfire. He's firing out of the front of the building with an automatic weapon. Copy. Can't get any closer, we're under fire. They dashed across backyards and over fences to meet a relative of Susie who lived down the street. They could hear gunfire in the background. They met Susie's relative in his getaway car. They escaped. They got free. It was a scary day. It was also evil, an act of evil against our beloved Jewish brothers and sisters at a peaceful Saturday worship service. And while my loved ones were okay, the same cannot be said of everyone in that synagogue, 11 of which were murdered. I've since returned to that spot about a half a dozen times since last October 27th. In fact, I'll be there again this Saturday with the girls. It's never the same. Each time I go, I pause to look at the synagogue and say a prayer. 
I've since talked to other parents who had dropped off their girls at the retreat center that Saturday morning. One of them, a dad, marvels at the conversation that he and his wife had had that fateful morning. His wife typically dropped off his daughter and then sat in the car in the drop-off lane at the Tree of Life Synagogue, where she waited and worked on her laptop for a couple of hours. On this morning, though, the dad, again, another strange gut feel, oddly decided that he wanted to drive his daughter to the retreat center. He wasn't sure why, but he just tried to convince his wife to stay at home. He prevailed and talked her into it. She stayed at home. For some strange reason, they made that decision. Had they not, his wife might have been one of the first ones shot that morning. The suspect in the shooting is in custody. We have multiple casualties inside the synagogue. We have three officers who have been shot. And at this time, we have no more information because we are still clearing the building and trying to figure out uh, if, the, if the situation is safe, if there are any more threats inside the building. So that's all we have at this point. They were very lucky. So were we. My wife and I, of course, are so grateful that our loved ones didn't get caught in the crossfire. My kids had only one scrape, one of the girls, from hopping over a fence. And yet I imagine that many of the families of the 11 dead asked why God hadn't spared their loved ones. I agree. That's one of those timeless questions that we all ask. It's a question that believers of all stripes, and the Jewish people in particular, have asked since literally the time of Job. It's a mystery why some leave this world in a violent way, seemingly prematurely, while others seem to stay longer in this valley of tears, and if and when certain people are protected and others are or aren't. I have no answer there, though I know that God is the author of life and God wasn't the one pulling the trigger in that synagogue. The evil that transpired there was not an act of benevolence by a loving God. I also feel confident in saying this, the true tree of life is not an earthly one, but an eternal one. This world, unlike the heavenly paradise we seek, is full of sin and rot. The trees in this world, they decay and they die. Eternal life and perfect bliss are not reachable in this world. They come in the next. Now that might be small consolation, I understand, to the grieving and hurting loved ones of the Tree of Life Synagogue, but honestly, I think it's truly the best that we can say. And we've been listening to Paul Kengor, who teaches at nearby Grove City College. And by the way, that's where our own Robbie Davis went to college, and thus the connection. And what a story he told indeed. And Paul put it so beautifully. Why do some leave this world prematurely at the hands of of a madman and a mass murderer like this while others don't. And I don't think Paul could have put it better, and I don't think there's a better way to put it. It's a mystery. But one thing's for sure, God didn't author uh, that choice that that young person made, that person made shooting all those folks. And then the question becomes, what choice did we make as it relates to stopping them? And in the end, well, we can't put ourselves in God's, in God's mind. And it's a mystery. Paul Kengor's story, his family's story of a tragedy in Pennsylvania that still lives with him today and will live on with him forever. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And by the way, we don't think about it often enough. But without rule of law, my goodness, well, you have Venezuela. And now Jesse Edwards takes a look at the misdemeanor system. We depend on the rule of law as a society to help keep our loved ones safe and our interests protected. But the law is just words on paper if it's not enforced. Do the crime, do the time, or pay the fine. If you hurt someone, the state can hurt you back on behalf of the victim or on behalf of the state itself. Which is where things get a little weird. Who am I hurting if I decide to jaywalk across this empty road? Jaywalking is considered an infraction, but in some jurisdictions it's a misdemeanor or requires a court appearance. In some places like Atlanta, it can get you thrown in jail. I could be looking at fines upwards of 300 bucks. That could ruin our day. But for some people, it can ruin their life. You can't really understand the American misdemeanor system without thinking very deeply about the role that money plays. Professor Alexandria Natapoff, UC Irvine. We're punishing people because of their poverty. And at the same time, and this is why I, I frame it as a question of less taxation, in many ways, those fines and fees, that wealth stripping of the poor, is funding the system itself. It's funding courts. It's funding probation offices. It's funding public defender offices. It's funding prosecution offices. Say you get caught up in a random bar fight. Somebody feels disrespected, throws a few punches, and maybe you swing back. Nobody sees who started it, so you both get arrested. Somehow, you racked up a few thousand dollars in assault charges, and they want 10% to let you out on bail. Even if you have that four or $500, how are you going to pay for your lawyer to fight the charges? Either way, if you don't take the deal and you don't have a good defense, they're coming after you. What bail has morphed into in the low-level court system is essentially a way of pressuring poor people to plead guilty. Because a $500 bail amount is out of reach for many people, for many families. Most Americans do not have $400 easily lying around. That's emergency money. So if you don't have that money, you stay in jail. And every day you stay in jail with a plea offer on the table is a day that you could be getting out. And so many people take those deals, not because they're guilty or not because anyone has really decided whether the evidence supports the conviction or they should be convicted, but as a way of buying their freedom. Often that whole net of punishment, that experience, the informal experience of going to jail, losing your job, incurring fines and fees and debt can be greater than the formal punishment that any judge ever imposes. The fine can be $500, but you may ruin your credit. You may have spent uh, three to five days in jail just waiting for your case to be resolved. You may have lost your the custody of your children because of that jail time. So there's, it's really an enormous net, both formal and informal. And the idea is that we, we should be more discerning. We should be more proportionate. We should be more just in the way that we punish. Professor Natapov wrote Punishment Without Crime. How our massive misdemeanor system traps the innocent and makes America more unequal. She found 13 million misdemeanors in this country each year. 
Hordes of people are arrested for minor crimes, swept through courts where the defendants can't afford lawyers, judges process cases in minutes, and nearly everyone pleads guilty. We should live in a criminal system where if someone has a conviction, we should be able to conclude from that conviction that they did the thing that they were convicted for. And it's not true in the misdemeanor system. All too often, if someone has a conviction, all we conclude is that they were likely to be arrested for all kinds of reasons that may have not had nothing to do with the evidence, that they were likely to have been rushed through the process in a speedy way, pressured to plead guilty, and that they were likely to plead guilty not necessarily because they were guilty, but because they couldn't make bail or they didn't have adequate counsel or because they didn't understand the consequences. And that, and we have the tools to fix that. We know how to run a lawful system. We just haven't done it in the low-level courts. It's really hard to argue with that. But on the other hand, you can't just let people go around urinating in public because that's exactly what people do if you let them, at least in the big cities. It was popular in the 90s when New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani's policing policies were influenced by what's known as broken window theory. If somebody urinates in public, the person is telling you, I got a big problem. This is what broken window theory is all about. I mean, if some guy is urinating in public, you can ignore the problem and say that I'm going to walk away from it and... We're going to make believe they have no problem. That's New York City in the 1980s. That's New York City with 2,000 murders. That's New York City with 500,000 uh, crimes. You have to pay attention to people urinating on the streets, and you have to get people to stop urinating on the streets. That's, that, that's moving towards civilization. That's moving toward decency that people want to invest in, people want their children to live in. You've got to pay attention to somebody urinating on the street. It may be a minor thing, it may be a serious thing, but you cannot ignore it. You have to deal with it. It is against the law to urinate in public. One thing everyone seems to agree on is that there are too many people in this country who are rotting away in jail for victimless crimes. Here once again is Professor Natapoff with a story out of Texas that shows just how far the state will go to punish someone who dares to commit the misdemeanor. Atwater versus Lago Vista is a very famous Supreme Court case, and it's about a, a, a mom in Texas who was driving around the local park at about 15 miles an hour with her kids who were not wearing seatbelts, looking out of the window uh, because her son Mac had lost his toy in the park. And so she had told the kids they could take off their seatbelt to look for the toy. Police officer pulled her over hollered at her, said, you're going to jail. The kids are crying. He, w- he won't let her drop the kids off to a neighbor. Said, no, you're all going to jail. She goes to jail. She's booked, goes to the cell, um, uh, has her possessions taken, fingerprinted. The maximum penalty for that misdemeanor, criminal misdemeanor in Texas, is $50. She couldn't go to jail for it. It's a non-jailable misdemeanor. She pays the fine and she sues. She said, this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, my right against unreasonable search and seizure. You locked me up in jail and gave me an arrest record for an offense for which I couldn't even go to jail. And the Supreme Court ruled against her. The Supreme Court said, for any offense, no matter how minor, no matter what the punishment, police officers 
can effectuate what we call a full-fledged custodial arrest, put you in jail with anybody else who happens to be in that jail at the moment. Um, you will get an arrest record. You can be booked. In some jails, you can be strip-searched for the arrest for any minor offense. And that is really the beginning of the net, of the, of the spread of the misdemeanor system, because what it says is that with all the things that we have turned into crimes in this country, as low level as they are, the weight of the state can come crashing down on anybody. So be careful and look twice before you cross the street. And remember, if you're not in the crosswalk, the full weight and authority of the state might come crashing down on you like a ton of bricks. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we've been listening to Alexandra Natapoff and her book, Punishment Without Crime. And you can get it at Amazon.com. Again, that's Punishment Without Crime. And Politics and Prose, we want to thank for providing the audio. They're a terrific bookstore in Washington, D.C. And you can just Google Politics and Prose, and so much of their content is right there on site. And C-SPAN, my goodness, if you watch book notes on C-SPAN or a lot of their book stuff, the book TV stuff. So often it's from politics and prose. So we want to thank the folks there for providing a great public service. And this is just another of our rule of law stories in our rule of law series, folks. And we love bringing you these stories because they're real. And I just keep thinking about that bail situation because I have a nephew who's been in and out of the prison system. And thank goodness he has parents who can afford to pay all the fines because those fines end up not making it possible for so many young people who've paid their debt to society and older people to get on with their lives. And it starts to feel like a revenue grab, a tax grab from the people least able to afford that tax. I think about this with parking tickets and especially speeding tickets. I've gotten a couple in my life and when I write that $300 check, I'm really ticked off and I can afford it. But I'm always thinking, why is it $300 and not 100 or 75? And what happens to that person who can't afford that $300 check. They can lose their car and maybe their career as a result of it. So that's why we do the Rule of Law series and stories, folks, because they affect your lives. And it's one of the rare places where you're seeing Republicans and Democrats agreeing on things. And that doesn't happen often enough in this great country. And when it does, nobody covers it. And we do. And that's why we bring you these stories. Our Rule of Law series, Alexandra Nadapov's book, Punishment Without Crime, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, in 1981, there was an attempted assassination on President Ronald Reagan's life. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. President Reagan was the 40th president of the United States, and he was loved by many. Sarah Moore brings us this story from a number of different perspectives.
25-year-old John Hinckley Jr. had given up his dreams of becoming a famous musician. He had packed his whole life into two suitcases and hopped on a bus that he took across the entire country, from California to Washington, D.C. This, he believed, would be his last trip. Aside from the few clothes he had packed, his plaid suitcase was full of books, a Best Western Atlas, a copy of Catcher in the Rye, the book that John Lennon's assassin carried in his back pocket, Romeo and Juliet, Strawberry Fields Forever, John Lennon Remembered, and Ted Bundy, The Killer Next Door. Hinckley rode across country on this bus, committed to the idea that his life would soon be ended. But once he arrived to Washington, D.C., he went to a bookstore, got an Egg McMuffin, and on his way back to his hotel, picked up a copy of the Washington Star. On page A4, he found the president's schedule. He read on that day, March 30th, 1981, that President Reagan was to deliver a speech to a trade union at 2 p.m. It was once Hinckley was back in his hotel room that he made the decision. Instead of taking his own life, he would take the president's life. My name is Jerry S. Parr. I was a special agent in charge of the Presidential Protective Division, U.S. Secret Service. I just made the transition from President Carter to President Reagan when we came to this hotel on March 30th, 1981. And this was the 110th time, I think we did some checks, that a president since the early 70s, maybe 1972, had come to the Washington Hilton. So it was sort of a, a routine kind of day. After the speech is over, we had the car parked. I was right behind the president when I hear these shots. Two shots very quickly, and then four more very quickly. And because we have television cameras on the president, we know exactly how long it took those shots. It took 1.7 or 1.8 seconds. That's less than two seconds to fire all six shots. Washington Post reporter Del Clinton Wilbur, author of Rawhide Down, recounts the shots fired from his perspective that day. The first one hits Jim Brady, the press secretary, in the head. He falls down. The second one hits Tom Delahanty, who's a D.C. police officer, who had turned around to check on the president's progress. He gets hit in the back, falls down, screams, I'm hit! Hits the ground. Now the path of the president is clear. It's wide open. Hinckley has an effective range of 20 to 30 feet. He has, he's done target practice. He can hit stationary targets 20 to 30 feet. Jerry Parr, in four-tenths of a second, I've tried to time it, it's very difficult, but in about four-tenths of a second, has grabbed the president of the United States the moment he hears the gunfire thrusts him behind Tim McCarthy, who swiveled his body, takes a bullet in the, in the chest. The first bullet hits Brady, the second one hits Delahanty, the third one flies over Reagan's head and lodges in a window of that building across the street. They actually recover it. There's a kind of a cool photo of the little bullet hole in, the, in one of those lobby windows. The fourth one hits McCarthy, who's turned like this to take the bullet. He's not wearing a bulletproof vest. Hits him right in the chest, bends him around. 
just as they're behind them. Jerry Park credits Tim McCarthy, who was helping save the president's life at that moment. The next bullet hits the window of the, the armored limo window, so the bulletproof window, just as you could see the president flashing behind it with Jerry Park pushing him in the limousine. And the sixth one cracks across the parking lot. No one knows where that one went at that moment. Then Jerry Park gets him in the limo, someone slams the door shut, and so they drive away and they head towards uh, Connecticut Avenue at that moment. What they didn't know at the time was Hinckley's final shot, the sixth one, had ricocheted off the back quarter panel of the limousine. Actually, they, they recovered the black paint and matched it to the limousine off the bullet that was later removed from the president. What Agent Jerry Parr did in just a few split seconds was both biologically and neurologically unnatural. Our first reaction is a trained reaction. It's called muscle memory. If you're trained to do something with a sound or something unusual, you cover first, you cover, and then you evacuate. And so the first thing I do is I take my left hand and I grab his left shoulder and my right hand comes up behind his neck and I start pushing him down. And one of those shots, he, I think the fifth one, but some people think other shots, one of those shots hit the right rear quarter panel and it bounced off and hit him as he went into the car with a, with, and it wasn't a fragment, it was a, it was a smashed 22 caliber uh, bullet that hit him in the, in the left armpit area, just below the armpit area, right into here. At this time, no one had realized that the president had been hit, when the fact was, the bullet had lodged just one inch from the president's heart. And as we were going in, uh, he had to put his hands out in front, otherwise he would hit his nose on the seat or the, or the transmission riser. But we, we landed in a pile, and I was still covering him, and that's the planned thing, because you don't know who's across the street. So I was still covering as we went in. When I got him in the car, I recognized that uh, he was not feeling well, because he told me, I think you hurt my ribs when you came in. Because his chest hit the transmission riser, and his head hit the seat. I examined him. I ran my hand. He was sitting up on the seat by this time, on the right rear, where he's supposed to be. But he never sat back. So I ran my hands up under his coat, his hair, everything, and found no blood. So that's when I radioed back. Rawhide is okay. But in DuPont Circle, or very close to it, he started frothing, frothy, bright red blood. And he was dripping it on my coat. So I said, I'm taking you to the hospital. He either said, okay, or he nodded to me. And I was very, very worried because in my career, when I first started, Jack Kennedy was still alive. Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy was also on the presidential detail that day. He recalls scanning the crowd right after President Reagan emerged from delivering his speech. I had looked at the president, looked back, then all of a sudden, uh, John Hinckley, who was on the left side of the rope line, uh, pushed himself forward. I really never put the gun with the person, because it happened so quickly. I could tell from the sound uh, and the smoke that I saw where the, the rounds were coming from. And the bullet went through the lung, liver, and diaphragm, and the common picture shows me grabbing my abdomen, but that's down where the liver was, where it went through the liver. So that was where the uh, pain was at that time, but actually I was shot in the chest. In total, four men had been hit. Reagan, McCarthy, Press Secretary James Brady, and Washington police officer Thomas Delahanty. 
And on this day in history, in 1981, there was an attempted assassination on President Reagan's life. This remarkable story continues here on Our American Stories. And again, as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. And you can learn more by going to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Our American Stories and the story of the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan continues after these messages. continue with our This Day in History and Our American Stories. President Reagan had been in political office for a mere two months when he was shot, and it wasn't until after he was shot that he would become known as the great communicator. But of course, Reagan had spent a lifetime, early lifetime, as an actor, and then spent many more years on radio and touring the country giving speeches for General Electric. So his communication skills were there. The country was about to learn a lot more about Reagan's skills and his character. Let's return to Sarah. We pick up the story with author Del Wilbur sharing Jerry Parr's perspective on what happened next. So uh, Jerry Parr, the agent, you know, looks out the window and sees there's a pockmark on the that door, on that window, where the bullet has your window. And... He also notices the three guys down the sidewalk as they pull away. He goes, now nah, this is bad. There's been a shooting. He props Reagan up in the seat you're in, props him up, like, kind of like this. Reagan's kind of like this, a, um, like a tired basketball player. And he runs his body inside his coat, pocket coat, and his hands through his hair to check to see if there's any blood. And there's no blood. So he feels pretty good. And he tells the driver to tell on his radio, because Jerry Parr has lost his radio. It busts off from his sleeve mic in the melee, and he lost his transponder. And so he, does, he can't use his radio to tell everyone what they're doing. So he tells Drew and Rue to use the, the microphone here to radio down to headquarters that they're heading back to the White House. Actually, they use the code word crown. And he takes the radio from Drew and Rue and says, Rawhide is okay. Rawhide is okay. Rawhide is uh, Ronald Reagan's code name. That's where I got the, the title of the book from. Rawhide is okay. Follow up. Rawhide is okay. Have that ready. You want to go to the hospital or back to the White House? We're going. We're going to Crown. Okay. Back to the White House. Back to the White House. Rawhide is okay. About right about here, Jerry Parr realizes that something's wrong with the president because he's having trouble breathing. He says, "I'm having trouble breathing. I don't know." What's wrong? Are you having a heart attack? Is it your heart? And, you know, Reagan says, I don't think so. And then he starts dabbing blood from his lips, and it's bright and frothy blood. And from Parr's training, he knows that that means it's oxygen. It's probably from the lungs. That isn't good. And so Jerry Parr has to make a call. Go ahead, Drew. Roger, we want to go to the emergency room. Roger, Roger. 
That's a Roger. Oh, George Washington fast. Roger, Sergeant Barrow, Corsi. Hey, man, please get the fire out of here. Get an ambulance. I mean, get the, um, etc. Because he can't say on the radio, Reagan's hurt. They don't use Reagan's name. They don't want, they know people and assassins and news media can be listening to the, the open radio communications, hence they use the code names. And so they abandon Crown, the White House, go, go to um, the hospital. All the while, each agent never broke code. Code for the president was rawhide, conjured up by Hollywood, the ideal tough, good-hearted cowboy who fights only when he has to and for the right reasons. By chance, the closest hospital was on the campus of George Washington University, a hospital that had a dedicated team of trauma doctors and nurses standing by, something few other hospitals had in those days. Here's the president's very own account on what he believed had happened. When I got in the car, I hadn't felt anything. He landed on top of me, and then the pain, which now I know came from the bullet hitting that rib, that terrific pain, and I said, Jerry, get off. I think you've broken a rib of mine. And he got off very quickly. And just then, I coughed. And I had a handful of bright, red, frothy uh, hmm. blood. So I said, and I guess the... Evidently, the broken rib has pierced the lung. Well, he simply turned and said George Washington Hospital, and we were on our way. But, uh, and all the way, I was, I used up my handkerchief, and then I used up his, but when I got to the emergency entrance, uh, I got out of the car and walked in, and a nurse met me, and I told her I was having a little trouble breathing, and what I thought it was, and the next thing I knew then, when my knees began to turn to rubber, and I wound up on a gurney, and... I was wearing a suit like this for the first time I'd ever worn it. It was brand new, and they were taking scissors and cutting it off of me. And you were thinking, <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> Did you ever think you might die? No, although I didn't just leave it to chance. I talked to my friend upstairs about that. But you never thought that this was the end? No. So some people in that situation, in a trauma situation, think it's over. Uh, no, I found out afterward that a lot of those people there at the hospital thought it could very likely be the end. They said that I was very near uh, going into a state of shock. And uh, I had also lost more than half the blood in my body. Dr. Benjamin Aaron was the surgeon who made a six-inch incision into the president's chest. The procedure was an exploratory one to find the bullet lodged in the president's lower left lung. Uh, when I walked down the emergency room, we have to be in stat page to go down there. I had no clue why they wanted me. And I saw all these strange people around, you know, with the uh, earplugs in and everything like that. And I said, like, what are these people all doing here? I walked in and there he was uh, on the gurney, stock naked. Joe Giordano was the doctor who had taken over trauma care at George Washington University, the nearest hospital to where Reagan had been shot. We took him to the operating room. Uh, he looked up at me uh, and he said, I hope you all are Republicans. And I said, today we're all Republicans, Mr. President. They do the protocols, insert the tubes, they, they, they flood him with fluids, they strip off his clothes, they get his blood pressure. This one nurse can't get his blood pressure. She starts sobbing because she's thinking about the one time she saw her father cry, and that was in 1963 when she came home and he was watching footage of the Kennedy assassination. 
She finally detects it with her fingers. 60. Normal is for him is 140. Anything under 90 is shock by basic definition. They realize he's been shot. Eventually, they strip him, they flood him with fluids. Everyone's doing their jobs, you know, everyone's focused. These ordinary people have been thrust into this kind of chaotic and crazy crisis-filled moment. One technician threads a three-foot-long IV line from this elbow all the way to his heart to get fluids more quickly in the measure of pressure. And then she looks up and notice all these guys with Uzis and earpieces and goes, what the? <laughs> and she looks down, sees it's Reagan and goes, oh my God. She turns around and gets smelling salts off a shelf and inhales it <laughs> to focus herself back on her job. They see this tiny little slit, little blood coming out. They know it's filled up. They have to relieve that pressure, so they insert a chest tube to drain the blood. The blood comes out, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. It doesn't stop. And that's when Ben Aaron has to make the decision to take Reagan to the operating room. There were two thoughts that Dr. Aaron had as he was looking for the bullet. The first was that he was not going to call in the VIPs. He was going to use the team that he had always done surgeries with. The efficiency in this decision would end up saving the president's life. Second, he wanted to get that bullet out for forensic reasons. Uh, I knew it was going to be a trial. Usually they like to have evidence. It'd be nice to have yeah. that bullet. So. President Reagan recovered from the surgery and was released from the hospital on April 11th. Meanwhile, Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity and placed in a psychiatric facility until September 2016, when he was released. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Appearing only a month later before a joint session of Congress, it was clear Ronald Reagan was back on track. You wouldn't want to talk me into an encore, would you? Letter came from Peter Sweeney. He's in the second grade in the Riverside School in Rockville Center. And he said, I hope you get well quick, or you might have to make a speech in your pajamas. Thomas Delahanty recovered from the gunshot, but suffered permanent nerve damage in his left arm. Ultimately, he would be forced to retire from the Metropolitan Police Department due to his disability. Timothy McCarthy was the first of the wounded men to be discharged from the hospital. James Brady survived after an almost fatal shot in the neck. His wound left him with slurred speech and partial paralysis that required the full-time use of a wheelchair. Brady remained as press secretary for the rest of Reagan's administration, but he died on August 4, 2014, at age 73. His death was ruled a homicide, caused by the lingering wounds from Hinckley's assassination attempt. President Reagan would go on not only to recover, but to win a second term. Were you angry? Well, I didn't know for quite a while until they began to tell me about the young man that had done this and uh, what his problem was, that he was not exactly on a normal basis. And so then, I added him to my prayers that if I wanted healing for myself, uh, maybe he should have some healing for himself. And a great job by Sarah Moore. And what a story. All those voices, the different perspectives. And my goodness, hearing Reagan say that at the end, were you angry, Larry King asked him. And he just, well, that's Reagan, the grace. 
It was always there. And my goodness, there's never enough of it in the world. He was praying for himself and his healing and praying for his assassin's healing because the young man wasn't well. And to be able to get to that place, live your life, well, that's where we all want to be someday, folks. And again, that's why we tell these stories here on Our American Stories. It's the story of how we Americans live life well, decently, and often beautifully. The attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan on this day in history in 1981, as always, brought to us by our great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and whenever we can, we bring you authors whose books we just couldn't put down. And today we're hearing stories from Roe Patterson, whose book Crude Blessings, the amazing life story of Glenn Patterson, American oil man, is a celebration of his father and the values he modeled. Roe, I want to start at the beginning. The first words from the book, quote, It's a day I'll never forget. Saturday morning, early spring of 1986. I was about 12. Dad shook me awake around 6 a.m. Nothing strange about that. Saturday was a work day. So was Sunday sometimes. He's been putting us to work on various weekends since elementary school. End of quote. That's where things started off. Where were you? Where were you going? And why? Well, that particular Saturday, we were going out to cut up uh, some structural pipe basically leftover flow lines from an old oil field and dad was selling the pipe off um, kind of as a uh, a spare job for some spare income to make his uh, interest payments at the bank. Um, Times were pretty tough in 1986. The company was in pretty rough shape. Uh, Dad and and my uncle Clois had had pretty much hawked everything they had. They were borrowed to the hilt and and they couldn't make their principal payments at the bank, and the bank had put them on interest-only payments. And uh, Dad just did little things uh, all everywhere he could to earn enough money to make his interest payments. And one of those things was was going out and cutting up all that old flow line and selling it off as structural steel. And that's what we were doing that day. Talk about where you were at the time. What part of the country were you living in? And talk a little bit more about your life growing up at that time? So we were in Snyder, Texas, which is western Texas, and we were in uh, really what amounted to the eastern side of what is called the Permian Basin, which is is still today one of the hottest oil and gas fields uh, in the world. Kind of middle of nowhere, out, out in the middle of west Texas on some ranch land, you know, that's where we went to cut up this old oil field uh, flow line and, and pipe uh, so that we could sell it for a 12-year-old kid, you know, the, the world was pretty small. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think there was much else out there besides West Texas. And let's talk about your dad's dad as we dig into the story of your father, and that's what this really is. This is a father-son story. But your father had a father. And you say this about him, quote, he worked hard at working hard. My dad was raised by this man and by these principles. Talk about your granddad. You know, my granddad was a interesting character. Uh, he came from a generation that really prided themselves in how hard they worked. Uh, they took a lot of pride in 
the fact that they had steady work and that they, they worked hard at their jobs. And he felt, uh, my granddad and, and my dad to a great extent, and I still do today, that a man is measured by his efforts and how hard he works, not necessarily for how much money he's accumulated. And so wealth was not an impressing thing to my grandfather. Um, he was just a hard worker. And my dad was raised that way, you know, that you measured a man by how hard uh, he worked at a particular job. And, uh, you know, my dad, to a large extent, raised my brother and I the same way. You know, we still today will we'll say things about, you know, individuals in the company that I run. You know, I, I will label people sometimes. Well, that guy's a hard worker or she's a really hard worker. And that means a lot to me. It's not necessarily a quantification of their success. It's that when they apply themselves, they're driven and they have a sense of urgency about accomplishment in, in whatever task or activity that they've chosen to endeavor on. That's a big deal to me. Yeah, it is indeed. Let's talk about poverty. Dirt poor was how my father described his upbringing. Talk about your father, where he grew up and how. He was born in 1946, by the way, just a year after World War II ended. And these were a lot of American men coming home from real, real tough battle. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Dad was one of these guys. They they moved around a lot when he was a kid, kind of uh, town to town, chasing work. And Dad was definitely got to witness all of that. And they had to work at a young age. You know, my dad had to start helping out at a young age, just kind of like I did. They didn't have a lot. They farmed a little, and they cut up uh, scrap iron. He, he got his nickname because he cut up scrap iron. Uh, you know, he was kind of a master of junk. He would recycle stuff and sell it off. And then always in, in our part of the world, there was the oil field as a source of income. And so my grandfather, my dad, myself... We're all products of, of the, what the industry brought to our area, our geography. Indeed. Now you also say about your dad, quote, he didn't learn much from books. He would learn from people. But he had an intelligence and an instinct that came from his gut. You also note that he was small for his size when he entered high school, but grew up and grew up to be a bit of a brawler and a bit of a truant in, in high school. Well, he was a little bitty guy when he started high school. I think he was one of the smallest boys in his entire um, high school class. Uh, uh, but uh, by the time he, he graduated and got into college, he was about 6'4", and he weighed, you know, 220 pounds. So he grew up quite a bit. You know, he's a tough guy. Uh, he didn't like anybody being picked on. He couldn't stand a bully. He had a few fights where, um, you know, the bully got whipped because he uh, he picked on the wrong person and Dad decided to back him up. And so uh, he was that kind of guy. He always rooted for an underdog, and that's kind of the, the environment that he was raised in. He had a brother, my uncle, whose uh, name is Alton Patterson, still still alive today, and, and he and Alton had notorious fights. You know, bare-knuckle fighting was no big deal to them. They, they, would, they would do it at the drop of a hat, and I think they kind of liked it. Um, you know, I think Dad was, I would, I would call him a, a, as much of a, a serial truant as any other high school kid. If he could get out of school, he tried to. He w- never really was interested in a lot of book learning. He went and got his college degree, worked himself through college by working in the oil field. He wanted that degree so he could go be a school teacher and get out of the oil field. You know, And then he, and he thought about going back into grad school at one point. 
uh, just so he could become a principal because he figured, well, if I'm going to be in a school system, I might as well be the boss of the school. You know, he wasn't a studious person where he would he would do lots and lots of reading or anything like that. He did read character, though. He was very good at sizing up business deals and people involved in those business deals. He could always spot a crook a long way off. He was very intuitive at reading people. And when we come back, more from Roe Patterson, author of Crude Blessings. And it's the life story of his dad, Glenn Patterson, an American oil man. This is Our American Stories. Roe Patterson, the CEO of Basic Energy Services, and the author of Crude Blessings, which is a family story centered on his father, Glenn. But of course, we can't really understand our fathers without talking about our moms. And Roe, your mom, she had experienced some real heartbreak before she met your dad. Talk about that. Yeah, my mother would... uh... She had gotten pregnant in her, in her first marriage uh, to, to a gentleman that she ended up parting ways with. So there she is, a single mom with a child, very young. Um, did, did fall in love again with a, um, a highway patrolman and uh, had a good life. They, uh, she enjoyed being married to him, wasn't married to him very long, and, and tragedy struck again. Uh, he died in a car accident. And now she you know, been married twice, still raising a, a young child on her own, and uh, uh, really wasn't looking for another relationship when she met my dad. But uh, my dad had a best friend, and that best friend was dating my mom's very good friend. And so they double-dated some, and she liked him, and they had a lot of fun when they would go out. He made her laugh. And uh, and so the, the relationship just sort of blossomed from there. But neither one of them were looking, you know, for that kind of love when they found it. And that's, uh, that's something that we know happened because they get married, and ultimately he chooses to teach with her. They go out to a little city called San Antonio. And talk about what that was like for your dad, because it's so very different than what he would end up doing. Did he ever talk to you about the years he taught? And ultimately, he refed, too, I, I remember, right? Right. He was a basketball referee. He loved it. Uh, they both loved it. And they loved San Antonio. My mom was a drama teacher, and Dad was a, a, a DECA, or a life skills uh, teacher. One of the first things he had to do when he, he got married to my mom was uh, teach her how to balance a checkbook because she couldn't do it because uh, they just didn't have very much money. But they loved their life. It was simple. And they weren't ever going to be very wealthy, but Dad uh, he said, you know, it was a good a good time to be young and married in San Antonio. I think that reality was starting to set in when I came along, a second child. You know, school teachers at that time and still today don't make near enough money uh, than for what they do, and uh, the bills were starting to pile up a little bit, and uh, and that's why when the oil field came calling, it had a certain attraction. Let's talk about a man named Cloyce Talbot, because, but for him, you never know what would have happened. Cloyce was my uncle. Uh, he married my dad's sister, and uh, the closer that uh, Cloyce and dad got, 
got to know each other, the more they liked each other. Clois had uh, gone to Texas Tech and gotten a petroleum engineering degree. He had started a couple of companies, and uh, he was in search of fortune in the oil and gas industry. And he liked Dad's work ethic. In fact, Dad used to work for him part-time during the summers uh, when he wasn't teaching school. And, and Clois really liked the, the way Dad ran his equipment and, and took care of things and uh, and the natural human leadership that, that dad possessed. He was very capable of getting people enthusiastic about doing their job and doing it well. And Klaus saw all those qualities in dad. And uh, in one Thanksgiving, he hit dad up. You know, he said, look, uh, you know, there's a lot of people making money in the drilling business. And uh, I think we ought to start a drilling company. And dad said, oh, no, heck no, I wouldn't know the first thing about that. And, and I don't have any money. Klaus said, you know, they're loaning money every day to guys that are not as smart as you and I. We ought to go raise some equity with some investors, go get some loans, and go build some rigs. Klaus has an infectious personality, too. He's a good salesman and very optimistic, a a real hard charger, a hard worker also. And he finally uh, talked Dad into it, and, and the rest was history. They started with a big loan, a few investors, and and went out and bought one old rig, fixed that thing up and put it to work. Uh, Little by little, that's how they started, you know, the second largest drilling company in in the world. And I love the part where he called his partner finally after pondering this and said, why the hell not? And that's just, uh, that's a remarkable spirit. I mean, leaving something you know, and particularly with kids and a mortgage to just go out into this unknown world, that took a lot of guts. Talk about oil and also the odd things that happen in your business, the huge swings in prices that sometimes a great success can suddenly and dramatically turn into an epic loss. That is an understatement of all time. Uh, There's no more cyclical industry than the energy industry. You know, oil drives the world. It's our number one stock for all fuels, uh, whether it be gasoline, kerosene, jet fuel, uh, diesel. It's the base component for all plastics in the world. You know, the world can't live without energy and without crude oil. It is still a a fantastic industry. Um, You can go from rags to riches or riches to rags uh, faster in this industry than any that I can think of. If you see a very successful oil and gas entrepreneur, you're probably looking at someone who's been broke multiple times in their life uh, before they gained their ultimate success. That is true to this day. Um, I know very few successful people in my industry, including me, who haven't been busted at some point. And I can't think of a, of a more American kind of uh, a resilient you know, entrepreneurial, fun industry than our oil and gas industry where uh, you see so many people become wealthy because they work really hard at it. And so it's a, it's a fantastic and amazing industry. There's days when I hate it and I wish I knew how to do something different. Uh, but most days I wake up and I I'm, I'm feel pretty blessed. Your dad and his partner began in 1977, and that was, I guess, a pretty good time to start a drilling company. Why was that? Well, the OPEC had had uh, cut off some supply, 
they were trying to control market share globally, and it had run some prices up. So there was a, a, a real desire um, in North America to, to produce, uh, you know, our own energy, our own oil, so that we wouldn't have to face, you know, gas shortages and gas lines and, and uh, you know, be constantly dependent upon foreign oil. So it was a real boom time in, in the late 70s. It was a good time to, to jump into the business. Let's talk about drilling. It's no duck walk. And the hard part about starting a drilling operation, it turned out, was finding good rigs. Talk about that. Yeah, so the, the industry is definitely not an easy one, and it does require a lot of ingenuity. We're constantly improving it and, and gaining on efficiencies. Uh, you can imagine that the drilling wells in the early 80s or late 70s and versus drilling wells today we're kind of quantum leaps ahead as far as technology, but the but the general sense of what we're trying to accomplish is still the same. You know, we're searching for buried treasure. The thing about Clois and Dad starting in the drilling business together, you know, Dad had worked on rigs his whole life, but he didn't have the foggiest idea of how to run a drilling company. And Clois thought that that uh, the Dad knew what he was doing, and Dad thought Clois knew what he was doing. So. Uh, it was the blind leading the blind when they really got off and got into the ditch and got, you know, multiple rigs they were trying to run. But, uh, you know, they, they worked at it, and they worked well together. They put together a great team of people. They surrounded themselves by as, as much wisdom as they could. There were fits and, and spurts there, but they finally uh, started to hit, you know, a few base hits and, and, uh, and some doubles along the way there in the early 80s before uh, the next oil field crash kind of found them in the mid-80s. I love that you wrote this about investors and what they were probably thinking. My God, these guys can't drill one well. How are they ever going to build a company? They lost $800,000 in their first two years. They hung in there and they stuck it out. Talk about that resilience because it's coming in handy right at the beginning of this business, isn't it? Oh, and it comes in handy every time we have a big cycle shift in this industry. You have to have a never-say-die, never-say-quit kind of attitude. You know, they ran into several really bad cycles along the way. You know, my dad used to say, hey, we were, we were bankrupt. We just didn't file the paperwork. One thing would always lead to another. And I think that their faith in God, their faith in each other, the hard work, the tenacity that they showed, they always found a way to just get out of the ditch, dust themselves off, and get back to making money again. Dad used to say, I'd rather be lucky than good. You know, have you ever noticed how lucky a hardworking man is? And I think he would also say today, you know, have you ever noticed how blessed we all were? They definitely had their share of, of hiccups along the way. They were land drillers for the most part, and they got into the offshore drilling business, and uh, it almost wrecked them, almost completely sunk the company. And they ended up having a catastrophic loss of one of the pieces of equipment in the Gulf. It fell over. It was called a punch-through, and it was a, a natural occurrence. It was something you insured the rig for, and when they figured out what the insurance was going to pay, it ended up paying all their debt off and getting them back out of the ditch again. And they sold the rest of the equipment and, and made out like bandits. But it, it was just unbelievable amount of, of, uh, of luck that, that did it for them. And luck never hurt anybody. We were bankrupt. We just didn't file the paperwork. I just love that. To learn more about the resilience of Glenn Patterson, his son Roe is the author of Crude Blessings. 
their story when we return here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Roe Patterson talking about his dad, Glenn, a legend in the energy business. Roe, tell us about the time you were in the yard with your dad, and he did something that really surprised and kind of confused you at the time. My dad was very competitive, but he also had a lot of respect for another competitor. So anytime he, you know, he saw someone who was trying hard, working hard, even if they were his competitor... He admired him, and he had a lot of respect for him. And one day, uh, one of his uh, competitors came into the yard, and I happened to be in the pickup with him, uh, and the guy was down on his luck. He had had a piece of equipment fail, and uh, he was in a real bad jam. He knew that Dad had a spare piece of this special equipment that was that was needed, and he needed it, and he couldn't get it anywhere else. Um, and he had come to Dad for help, and Dad never batted an eye. He loaded that equipment up for that gentleman and said, pay me when you can, good luck. Never, never thought twice about it. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, that guy's, you know, you're bidding against him every day for jobs. Why would you help him? And you know what? He just looked at me. He, 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 he almost couldn't figure out why I was asking. He said, because he needed help. And uh, it was the right thing to do. And he, he met every challenge in his life that way. You know, Dad wasn't an extraordinarily religious person uh, early in life. He was later in life, but early in life he, he really wasn't. But he lived his life by some very godly principles. You know, to treat others as you want to be treated was probably one of his biggest mantras, and he always did. He always tried to treat people the way he would want to be treated and, and treat them ethically. And so it didn't matter if it was customer, competitor, vendor, employee, he wanted you all to be treated well when you had a dealing with him or with his company. Tell the story of Jody Nelson, because one person like him can destroy a company. And we had talked earlier about your dad having a keen eye for character, but as keen as any of our eyes are, one can always slip through. Talk about Jody. Yeah, you know, he was a young guy, a sharp guy, very likable Clois and, and, and even Dad had given him a lot of responsibility. He'd moved up through the organization. When it came time where they needed a new CFO, um, they gave him a shot. He was very young, but uh, they thought he was very capable as well, and that uh, under the, uh, the tutelage of both Clois and Dad and the rest of the board members, they felt like he could fulfill the role. What they didn't know was that the guy was uh, diabolic, and he had a huge fraud invoicing scheme that he was running in the background, keeping it hidden from the auditors, keeping it hidden from the board. And Patterson was doing extraordinarily well during this time frame, and so the profits weren't missed uh, because the company was making so much money and doing and doing so well. When it finally all came crashing down on this guy, uh, you know, he got caught over over a little tiny expense account. And then that led to one thing and then led to another. And so you, you see a lot of these fraudsters, when they're finally caught, it's usually some little trip-up that gets them, you know, and uh, something small that they've, they've kind of uh, forgotten about and, and just really hadn't paid attention to. And then that, But that being what it is, being fraud or being wrong, 
makes people question everything you do. And then they start to dig. And when they dig, they, that's when they find more and more. And that's what happened in Jody's case. You know, he had misused the trust that the company had given him, that Clois had given him, and that dad had given him. And he had defrauded the company out of several million dollars, um, 70-something million total, over an eight-year period. You know, he ended up going to federal pen, I think, for 25, in a 25-year sentence with, with no chance for parole. And, you know, it, it ruined his life. And uh, it's just a shame to see someone get so sick with, with greed that, uh, that they were able to do that. Both Cloyce and Dad were always very disappointed that they didn't sniff him out quicker and keep it from being such a, a, a wreck of a story, both for, for the company and for Jody himself. Yeah, it had to hurt Dad and, and, and his partner on the deepest level because that kind of betrayal is personal, A, and B, it's reputational. Let's talk about the merger that changed the family business. You wrote this. It was a proud moment for my father. In two short decades, the former San Antonio schoolteacher and basketball referee had catapulted himself to the helm of a company worth $2.6 billion. Talk about that. Yeah, there was a, a, a phase of consolidation in the industry. We, we go through these periods in the oil and gas industry, and especially on the oil field services side of the industry where we, we build a lot of fragmentation in the industry. So there ends up being a lot of, of uh, privately backed or small sponsors uh, that, that, that build up too many oil field service companies. And then so you see these waves of consolidation where they start to get all bought up by some of the bigger actors in the market. And what, what Clois and Dad had done in the uh, and the, the late uh, 1990s was they went on a buying spree. And they started, I actually got out of college about that time and was working for them. And we were buying drilling companies up left and right and just merging them into to Patterson. And, and Patterson was becoming bigger and bigger. And Patterson's biggest competitor out there in this whole purchasing spree was a company called UTI, Union Triad. And, uh, uh, you know, they finally got the good sense, both the Union Triad leadership and the Patterson leadership, to put the companies together and form an even larger drilling company and quit, quit bidding on drilling companies with each other and just put, put themselves uh, uh, under the same uh, public entity. And they, they did that in, in uh, the 2000, 2001 timeframe. And it was a very proud moment for all of them, for Clois, for Dad. Uh, they, were, they had really seen the company go from, you know, one rig to, to you know, well over 300 combined rigs together. And uh, it, was, it was pretty magical to see that kind of homegrown American success story. And what a long way your dad had come, Ro, from having one rig where practically nothing worked to this merger into an industry giant. But as well as things were going with work, your dad soon had a new challenge to face as he entered retirement. Again, I quote from your book, quote, taking time off was simply not in dad's playbook. And here he was retired. But there was something eating away at dad that was more troubling. It was subtle, but he couldn't deny it anymore. He had started forgetting things. Talk about that. Yeah, so Dad's uh, probably getting about 59 years old uh, at this time. It's probably 2005-ish, uh, 4-ish, right in there. And, uh, you know, they, they just had an unbelievable run in the industry. I think Dad had been at the helm of the new combined Patterson UTI for 
three or four years, and they had gotten through the Jody uh, disaster, and he just felt like it was time to hang it up, and he felt like it was going to be a time for new people with new ideas, new new levels of energy to come in to the industry. But he 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 had a hard time doing it. He had a hard time giving up. Um, but I think one of the things that sort of pushed him over the edge that it was time to retire was he was starting to forget very small things. Uh, his short-term memory was starting to fade a little bit. I would have multiple conversations with him that were the same, you know, and I'd say, Dad, we've already talked about this. You know, we talked about it yesterday. Oh, no, we didn't. Yes, we did. You know, and, and then, uh, you know, he would forget the score to the, to, to the golf game, you know, how, you know, how many holes he had won versus how many holes I had won. It was little things. Uh, he'd forget a phone number. He never forget phone numbers. He was, his mind was like a steel trap. He could always remember people's phone numbers. But he started forgetting little things like that, and it scared him. And it was unfortunate, and here he is, you know, in the twilight of his life, in the twilight of his career, and he's, he, you know, he's, he's ready to retire and ring the bell. And, uh, you know, it was obvious that something was wrong. And uh, he went to multiple physicians to, to seek answers. And the answer came back each time that it was Alzheimer's. And that was tough to swallow. You know, he, he just couldn't believe that here he was, you know, 59, 60 years old, and he has, he's being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He just, uh, it took the breath out of him, it took the wind out of him for sure. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story. And in the end, parts of it sad and parts of it triumphal. Roe Patterson's story of his father, Crude Blessings, the amazing life of Glenn Patterson, American oil man. That story continues here on Our American Story. Continue with the story of Glenn Patterson is told by his son, Roe. And we had just learned about this remarkable merger and this man who'd started with nothing, building this big company and selling it. And then, after that remarkable news, devastating news, and the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And by the way, we talk a lot about Alzheimer's here on this show. And as you know, Roe, it's something that affects the entire family, not just the patient. Tell us about a particularly tough day for you, June 10, 2010. Yeah, very hard day. My brother and I had been, you know, we'd been contacted multiple times by by local police, by friends of the family, and just said, you know, hey, your dad pulled out in front of so-and-so. His motor skills were starting to, to, to diminish, and he did not need to be behind the wheel. He was just forgetting some of the the things that we all take for granted when we're driving. You know, a light turns green, you go, and when it turns red, you stop. And, and, you know, he was forgetting things like that. You know, it just wasn't making as much sense. But he still had a huge amount of pride in driving himself and in his vehicle. You know, his pride had always been a clean pickup, and he still had a clean pickup, and he still loved driving around in that truck. 
And, uh, you know, when we, we went to talk him out of, of driving or tried to talk him out of driving, it was about a, as big of a fight and argument and upsetting to him as I ever could have imagined. And, uh, you know, it's just it's very difficult to, for someone who has a lot of pride uh, to, to, you know, be told, you know, you can't drive anymore. Um, and that's a, just a, a very painful thing to have or have to talk to your parent about. Indeed. At one point, I think things got so bad for your dad that he actually thought about just giving up and, and even suicidal notions. And you wrote this, my heart sank. The man who never quit, who never gave in to adversity, always pushed ahead no matter what and modeled that for everyone around him was ready to quit. Yeah, you know, he, he, had, he had given me every indication that he was thinking about taking his life. He had said as much to my mother, um, you know, that he wasn't good for anything anymore. You know, the disease had robbed him of, of his pride. And, um, you know, he was just at his wit's end and at his bottom. You know, his, the, his morale was, could not have been any lower. And he felt like he was just going to be this burden on everybody for, for the rest of his life, you know, and, and, and uh, he just wasn't willing to, to accept that. You know, I quickly removed the firearms from the house and, and made sure that, uh, you know, that uh, there was no way he could do that. Um, but it's something that uh, our family just had to deal with. I think a lot of families, when you're dealing with something like cancer or or Alzheimer's or any of these, you know, diseases that uh, that can be terminal, that's um, you know, it's definitely something that that patient has to 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 deal with and overcome is their you know their the mortality and that and that. Um, you know, ending it quickly and uh, uh, could be one uh, solution, but it's not. It's not the right one for your family or for yourself. And and uh, but it was a uh, it was a, a difficult period that Dad uh, did did overcome. Uh, and and uh, he found quite a lot of joy in in religion a- uh, after that. But but it, it kind of took him hitting rock bottom before um, you know he found that. Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, there was a lot for your dad to take in almost at once. The embezzlement, the retirement, the exit from his company, all tough things. Then the Alzheimer's. Let's talk about your dad's faith walk. You wrote this, quote, All of these things, they all hit him at basically the same period of his life. No wonder he wasn't at peace. I did a lot of praying for him that year. So did Mom. We asked the Lord to help open Dad's heart. But everyone is responsible for their own salvation, you can't make a horse drink, especially a stubborn mule like Glenn Patterson. Talk about your father's faith walk as a young man and a man. You know, he always had a strong belief in God. He didn't practice religion very well. He was not a good churchgoer. His mother was very religious, and he was raised on those principles of, of honor and integrity and ethics and doing the right thing and being good to people, giving to others in need. And he did a lot of that in his life. He lived a very godly life, as I said earlier, without even really understanding why or how. But at the end of his life, he wanted that personal relationship with God that he had never had. That he, you know, that prayer life, uh, that intimacy with God that, that was missing, he, he went looking for it, and he found it. And uh, it, it, was, it was unbelievable uh, to see that kind of transformation of him. And when he found his religion... 
he faced it like he did almost everything in his life with tenacity. He went to church every single Sunday. He sat in the same spot. He was very involved. He wanted to hear the, the Word of God spoken. He wanted to be preached to. He wanted to sing the, sing the songs. He, he loved being in, at the church services and listening to the music. And he, and he, you know, so he jumped into religion with both feet, uh, you know, kind of like he faced anything in life. You know? So um, it was a very uh, peaceful thing for my family to experience after we had just seen him go through all of that adversity. I want to get to one moment between your mom and dad in this great book. And your, your story started like this, quote, He looked in my mom's eyes. There's no fixing what's wrong with me, is there? It was one of the few times my mother says my dad really faced his illness. No, I don't think God intends to heal you. For whatever reason, this is his will for you. Your dad took it stoically, you wrote. His faith was now strong enough to accept God's will fully. He knew he was no longer in charge and would never be in charge again. He never really had been in charge at all. What a relief. Yeah, you know, Dad was, uh, he was the one everyone looked to. You know, he was the leader. He had the answers, you know, both in his company and his personal life. He was a leader of men. And uh, there was a lot of responsibility that comes with that when you're a leader like that. And, uh, you know, people look to you for the answers to predicaments or problems or solutions to challenges. And for him to face that uh, rationalization, that there was nothing he could do about Alzheimer's, um, and that God was in control and was going to take care of him, um, he was relieved. Uh, you know, he, he, was, um, he was finally at peace. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to be the go-to person. God could do that for him. And I think it dawned on him, and it hit him at just the right time that it needed to. Indeed. I want to read from your eulogy, and I think for anybody listening out there who wants to take some lesson from this, and I think it's why you put it in your eulogy, and Rose, so I'm going to read it. You said, Dad was a Christian, but for most of my life he was not. I knew he wanted me to know Christ, but he wanted very little relationship with God for himself. He didn't come to church with us, and we didn't talk with him much about God. When we did talk about it, he would say, God and I have an understanding, and don't worry about me. But I did worry. I worried I wouldn't see him in heaven. You see, it was pride that prevented him from being saved, and we knew it, and he knew it. It wasn't shocking. I've known many men who suffered from the same problem. In fact, we all probably have. Talk about that pride and how, how blessed you were to see that fade away at the very end. Well, I think so many times, um, you know, human nature is that we, we, have, we have to solve certain things. Now, there's... There's always uh, problems that that, uh, that that we have in life, and and we we are the ones that have to handle it, right? And I think as men, uh, you you, it's, you slip into that uh, misconception a lot uh, that you you've got to handle it. You know, you've got to step up for the family and take care of certain things. I think for Dad, it was a it was a blessing later in life to to realize that no, you you, you just have to have faith. You have to give up your will so that his will can be done and that's a difficult transition for anyone to make it's a challenge i think we have our whole lives 
is to submit to you know a higher authority and a higher power and 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 that will of that power and that submissiveness is a pride thing you know it's i'm i'm got to take care of this this is my issue you know you take care of you i take care of me and and the truth is we all need help and uh and i think that's what dad uh, found uh, later in life, uh, it just took him a lot longer. Uh, but uh, but he, I was proud of him and proud for him that he had finally uh, figured out that uh, God was in control and that uh, all he had to do was um, believe and pray for his will to be done in his life. Indeed, and I'll close with the final words of your eulogy. I believe Dad's legacy and his testimony should be this. It is never too late for Christ, and it's never too early. Dad was a good man and a great dad, but he had many flaws just like we all do, and he was a sinner. He wasn't perfect, but because he was broken and believed, he's perfect now. And thanks to Roe Patterson for that remarkable tribute to his own dad and families that don't know their own stories well, how sad, and we're trying to correct that, and we want to hear your stories, your family stories, a father, a mother, a grandparent. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. By the way, this has been a running series about a town, too, this remarkable town, Midland, Texas. Send some stories about your town, because we'd love to tell a story about another town. The country is filled with so many great towns and communities. And by the way, thanks to the Sparks family. They recommended the Patterson story. And the Sparks family, well, we did a story about them, too. Don has 11 family members spanning three different generations working at his 29-person company, Discovery Operating. And you can hear that great family story at OurAmericanNetwork.org as well. Roe Patterson, Glenn Patterson, their stories, the Patterson family story, here on Our American Stories.